Well, good morning. I love being a part of a praying church. And that, I mean, doesn't it just feel biblical to lay hands on people and pray? But I'm probably about to ruin laying hands on you forever. But uh, when we've all been on the hand laying, like I never know the appropriate amount of pressure. Like we've all had the, the guy that has like his full body weight on us. And then there's that other guy that's like barely like touching and you're not sure if it's the Holy Spirit or like what, what it's just so light you don't know what the pressure is on you. So I am just painfully awkward in every situation and like I should be focused but there are other things happening up there sometimes. So that's just that's what's going on in my head. Um, I this morning we're going to be back in Ruth uh, and so kind of the process of how we produce messages is during the week I study and write and on Saturday night I go back through it and I begin to learn it and and spend time with the message and last night it just hit me differently and the the Lord was preaching to my heart we we see in this 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 message that uh Naomi she, she, she uses the argument of realism and comfort to, to lead these, these women or attempt to lead them away from walking in obedience. So I, I just pray that it's a blessing to you. Let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll look at our text together. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts loudly. Lord, I pray that your voice would be unmistakable. We wouldn't, we wouldn't put it off as something like, maybe that's coming from me, or maybe, but we would know clearly that you're speaking to our hearts this morning. God, I pray for conviction. I pray for soft hearts. And God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to move in us in power that we would respond in faith. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Ruth. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6, and we're going to go uh, verse 6 through 18. Last week, we saw Naomi and, and, and Ruth's desperate situation. Na Naomi and, and her husband and her two sons, they lived in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and, but a famine came, and they left the, the house of bread to go to the, the pagan land of Moab, and there they stayed for 10 years. Eventually, her husband died, but the boys took two wives, and the boys also died. So now, Naomi, who's kind of been the, the, the lead character in our, our story, she's lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, and she's living in a foreign land responsible now for these two foreign women. Alone, she knows her only real hope for survival and prosperity lays in Israel. So the scene this morning is Naomi, she's leaving from Moab to go home. And we, we enter into this conversation with her two daughters-in-law, who themselves are dealing with loss and pain and emotion. The conversation reveals Naomi's heart towards God because of her situation. And Naomi, she's just so, she's so 
fixated on the current situation. She comes, becomes bitter, and her, fix, her fixation blinds her to God's sovereign hand of blessing, even in her pain in the land of Moab. So what's true? Bitterness drives us to fixate on the situation and blinds us to God's sovereignty and his comfort. We're going to see this loud and clear in Naomi's heart and through her life. So what do we do with this? We must take every thought captive, as, as Colossians 2 tells us, and fix our eyes on God to receive comfort. We're not to look for comfort in, in, in anything we can find here, but we have to fix our eyes on God, and from God is where comfort comes. So let's look at our text, starting in verse, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had, heard in, <clears throat> she had heard in the field, in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with me, uh, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not return. We, we will return with you to your people. Verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If... If I should hope to have, if I should have hope, even 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 if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would 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 you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw <clears throat> that she was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So we're going to take, take this in a couple sections. The first section we're going to look at is... 6 through 13, and we're going to see that um, she's bitter and she's blind to God. Just a quick recap. So Naomi lost her husband, lost her sons. She's in a foreign country, and she's just trying to figure life out. 
And we've all been in a situation like this where maybe you've heard whispers of, maybe you've heard whispers of um, layoffs coming. So you just start shooting out um, resumes as quick, quick, quickly as you can get them out just to make something happen. Or maybe you've been laid off. I've been laid off. And, you know, you, you just put your head down and you're just trying to stir something up so that you can have a paycheck, right? Or maybe, uh, maybe there's a, you find out that there's a, a new baby coming. And just the math doesn't add up and now you've got one more mouth to feed. Or maybe you find your situation is very similar to Naomi's. You've experienced loss from a family member or a spouse, and you just feel numb. And you, you don't know the next step you should take, so you're just putting your head down and you're just plowing ahead, just, just trying to figure life out. In verse 6, Naomi is emotionally reeling from the loss of her husband and her only two sons. And when we read the Bible, sometimes we read it very stoically, but you got to remember, these are real people at a real place in time with real emotions, going through real situations. And she's broken. We see them weep together twice in this passage. And in, 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 in verse 6, somehow God gets a message to her in the field of Moab that God has blessed Israel with food. Now, we don't know if it's a traveler just walking through the field. We don't know if um, the ladies are just gossiping as they work. We don't know how she gets this information, but God sends her this message. You'll see it in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Remember what drove her away from, from Bethlehem, from the, from the house of bread? There was not bread in the land. But now she's heard in the land of Moab that there's finally food. Fin finally, there's a reason to return. And I believe that this message sovereignly got to her. Last, last week, we defined sovereignty as to reign over all. God reigns over all. So when you're thinking about what, what God reigns over, if it falls in the category of all, then God's over that. And he, he's over all situations, all peoples, and all circumstances. And I believe that, that God used that famine to drive Naomi and her husband to Moab so that her sons would marry Ruth. I believe that, that God wanted Ruth to, to come back to Israel. I believe that God desired that Ruth would marry Boaz. So he set all these things in motion so that Boaz and Ruth would father this, this boy named Obed. And this boy named Obed would grow up to be a man and he would father Jesse. And Jesse would father David. And David would be king of Israel. And God made a promise to, Ab uh, to, to, to David that there would be one from his line who reigns forever and ever. Amen. And that is King Jesus. This is a royal line that God is starting with Ruth. So Naomi hears that there's food. He, she, she hears that, that there's provision and she's setting out. And now she's got two Moabites in tow. And 
a lot, often people want to say, all right, well, where does man's will start and God's sovereignty end? There are a lot of books written on that, and I don't, you, can, you can read a lot, but I don't feel like you're going to get very far. That is one of the mysteries of the Bible, that God is sovereign over all these things, all these situations, all these people, and all these decisions, and man is choosing to do them, and somehow God is working that together. So if you want to get much beyond that, I think you're going much beyond what the Bible's given us. So now Naomi is trying to talk these two daughters-in-law of hers from coming home with her, and the conversation will reveal a lot about Naomi's spiritual state. So let's look at verse 8. Her first, she makes two real arguments, and her first argument, she appeals to comfort. Go return each of you to, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he's dealt with the dead and with me. <clears throat> Verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So I want you to, to, to underline the word rest in that if, if you're a, a Bible drawer. And then kindly, too. Those, those are two big themes through this book. So the, the, the first command that Naomi gives these, these women is to go home, go, go back to your families. And she asked the Lord to bless them as, as he had blessed her and her family while they were alive. And then she calls for the, the blessing from the Lord of rest. Now, that doesn't like hit hard with us, but rest is one of the main themes of the Old Testament. The book just, Genesis starts with rest. All right, so you got creation for six days, and what do we do on the seventh? Rest. God, God frequently commands his people to rest. Part of, part of rest is, is, is God bringing you comfort and, and provision. You, you see Moses go up on the mountaintop, and we always talk about Moses coming down with the law. But Moses comes down with a calendar of weekly rest. Weekly Sabbath rest is commanded. There are all sorts of festivals to be done monthly and quarterly and yearly, and every 50 years there's even one. All that the people would rest and celebrate the Lord and what the Lord's given to them. The, the promise of them going into the land of Canaan was a promise of rest that the Lord would provide for them. And Ruth, or Ruth, I'm sorry, in Naomi, she is saying, when, when they're thinking about rest, she says she's hoping that, they, that the Lord would bless them with this, this rest, this provision, this life of comfort in their new marriages. And look, look at your text, and you can just see their hearts break as she says this. She finishes speaking the first time, and they weep. Each conversation ends with these women's tears. She's, these, these women are trying to devote themselves to her, and she's trying to shoo them away. I, all I can hear is growing up, like the, the redneck down the road going, go on, get. Like that's what she's doing. She's, she's trying to get them out of her life. And these two ladies, they're ready to give everything away, devote themselves to her because they love her and follow her. Who's got family and friends like that? If you do, you cling to them. These ladies 
are the comfort that God had provided for her, and she could not see it through her bitterness. And here's the underlying message of all this. If, if and when these women go home, they're going home to the false gods of Moab. This is their chance to go to Israel. This is their chance to be in a place that worships Yahweh God. This is a place where they're going to have a chance to enter into this covenant rest that, that God promises and receive an eternal inheritance. But Naomi, she's willing to forfeit that because she's fixated on her situation. And I don't want to be too hard on her because I miss opportunities all the time because I'm fixated on my situation. Whether I'm in a hurry, whether I'm frustrated, whether I'm mad, whatever the situation is, I'm missing opportunities to speak life into somebody that desperately needs it. Naomi misses this opportunity because she's focused on her situation. She tells them to go home so that they can find rest. And this is, this is a life of comfort. Her reasoning for them to, to, to stay is, is for their comfort and probably for hers too. Because now Naomi should know this, but we remember last week we talked about um, in the book of the Judges, uh, each man did what was right in their own eyes and they had forgotten the law. Had she known the law, had she been walking closely with God, she would know that the law requires provisions for the widow and for the resident alien. She would have known that there would have been provision for her and those ladies. But in my mind, I, if I'm her, I'm walking back and I'm going, who in the world's going to help me with these two pagans? So the last thing I want you to see, Naomi calls that, that word kindly I told you to underline. Man, so our, our translators are stellar. The, the Bible translation you have in your hand, you can it's good stuff. But one of the things, especially in the Jewish language, they don't have as many words as we do. And you know how sometimes we can say something and it, it, it has a whole uh, idea attached to it. It's not just a word. For example, um, if we say Democrat or Republican, whole ideas are associated to those things. It's not, they're not just words. And this word, kindly, that's, it's more than a word. It's an idea that they would have understood. The word's hesed. And the idea that comes with hesed, it's a, it's a, it's a covenant term. And it's, it's, it, it, it wraps itself in all the positive attributes of Yahweh God. It's, it's Yahweh's love and, and his covenant faithfulness. It's his, it's his mercy and grace and kindness and loyalty and long-suffering to someone, to, to the people of God. And she's asking this hesed blessing over these women from the Lord. But here's the thing. Only those who believe in God and enter into covenant relationship receive the hesed blessing of God, of God's faithfulness 
and God's loyalty and God's long-suffering with us. If this, this, this hesed, it has to do with covenant faithfulness and, to, uh, and, and the attributes of God that go above and beyond his grace and mercy that he gives, like this, 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 this loving God. Like when there's so much here about God and we see Naomi misusing and, and, and misunderstanding God by saying, hey, you go back to your paganism. And I'm just going to, Lord, give them your covenant blessing as they go. How could these women go back and live in paganism outside the covenant and still receive God's covenant blessings? They can't. They're outside the covenant. This is something I see in our culture, in our churches, when someone's living outside this new covenant, this, this faith in Jesus Christ, they, they're, they, they, they're not a believer. But instead of calling them to repentance, what we do is we, we try to console our conscience and their conscience. And, and we do this by, by claiming the promises of God on their lives when they have no evidence of being believers. And when we're doing that, what we're doing is we are lulling them to hell instead of calling them to repentance. It's not helping, it's hurting. Orpah chose to go back to Moab and Naomi sent her back with the false assurances of God's covenant blessings on this life and on the next. Naomi's trying to... to, to to tell them to go home and that they can find rest and that there's no, that we know that there's no rest in this life apart from God and there's definitely no rest or comfort in the next life apart from him. But here's the problem. It's bitterness. Bitterness drove her to fixate on her situation and it blinded her to God's sovereignty into his comfort. God gives Naomi these two young ladies as comforts, and Naomi's trying to comfort them in their grief with empty comforts of what the world can provide. I just think we need to hear a word from that, that we, that we be sure not to, to do that thing. Often I hear, especially in people when they're struggling and hurt, Christians, we mean to do well, but some of the most ignorant things I hear people say are at funerals. It's okay not to say anything. It is. But I don't want to be too hard on, on Naomi because grief is blinding and that's why we have to set our eyes on God and his promises. Naomi, she's sending them back to, to Moab because that's where they're going to find, in her mind, the most comfortable life. So one last thing on, on comfort. Satan, when he tempts us, he appeals to comfort over obedience. Let me say that again. Satan, when he tempts us, he appeals to comfort over obedience. Think about when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. The call was comfort. His temptation was 
comfort that he would turn the, 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 the stone into bread. Comfort was part of his argument in the garden. You'll be like God. Comfort was the call in, in the wilderness with, with Moses that they would be able to go back to Egypt. Wasn't it better in Egypt as slaves? At least there was food there. They say it multiple times. Comfort. If in your decision-making process to follow God's direction, if it's based on comfort, I'll bet that that is the enemy trying to keep you where you are instead of following in obedience. Comfort often is at odds with faith. So first, she tries to send him away with a call of rest and a call of, of, of temporal security. But now in our text, starting in verse 11, what she does is she appeals to realism. And this is the one that gets me. Verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I have yet a, a, a son in my womb that, that they would become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should have, have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and, and, and bear sons, like, if, let's say, let's say we, we get lucky. I, I, I get married today. I, I, I have twins in my womb. Are you really going to wait? Verse 13, would, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Naomi's telling him, look, I can't give you what you need. I can't, I can't give you sons. Even if I get married and conceive today, we're nine months out from having a baby, and then you're, you're way out from, from, from having, having husbands. Would you really wait? And here's the thing. The family's wealth was connected to the land that they would inherit. And these Moabite women had no claim on the land. Yeah, they were married into that family, but without heirs, I'm, I'm sorry, this isn't our, our Western world, they don't have claim to it. And the, the, the land, remember we talked about this, not to go back through the history, but all the way back to Abraham, God promises that he's going to give them the land of Canaan. And then we go to Moses, and Mo, God promises again that he's going to give them the land. And the land is to stand as a monument to the people of God, of God's covenant faithfulness to them. And it's to be passed down from from family to family, and Moabites just aren't in the family. Now, we do see God, God has provisions for pagans. Ruth in Jericho, she marries Caleb, also in the line of Jesus. Like, there, there, there's provisions for this. But these Moabite women, they have no claim to the land. Naomi wants them to know that their best personal interest lays in Moab. Naomi wants them to be, and I'm going to put air quotes around this. Y'all know how I like air quotes. Realistic. She wants them to be realistic. That your best path forward's in Moab. The call for realism, like the call for comfort, puts us often at odds with walking in faith. 
the, the, the call for realism is why Moses is spies. When, when God sent them into the promised land the first time, they came back and they were like, hey, God didn't lie. Milk, honey, that place rocks. But those people are super scary and we don't want to do that. And all the nation turned with them because they were being realistic. And they died in the desert apart from the promise of God. The world's definition of realism is what keeps people, what keeps the people of God often from walking the path that God has for them, for them taking the step. What, what we want is we want the whole roadmap, right? We want to see the end. That's not how God gives it to us. He just shows us where we're to place the next foot. If we could see the end and make the decision, that's, that's us uh, putting ourselves in the place of God saying, no, God, that's not going to work for me. Maybe a call for realism is what's kept you in the past from, from answering God's call in your life to go on the mission field or following God wherever he's leading. Maybe, maybe that's what's kept you from taking that job. Maybe that's what's kept you from doing this or doing that is realism. This kind of realism keeps one eye on the situation and does not look up to God. Faith has eyes and it looks through the lens of what God can do based on God's character. Had Naomi trusted in the trust in the, the Hesed love of God and provision, this conversation would have been a lot different. She would have known the law. She would have known that God had a provision for these alien women. God would have known he had, uh, there was a provision. She would have known that God had made a provision for, for, for all these widows that these landowners should take care of them. She had her head down just trying to plug ahead. Where are the areas that maybe the past situations have made you a bit bitter and you're constantly instead of saying God where would you take me you're choosing the path that looks safe and secure God does not call us necessarily always to the path of safety and security look at most of the, the stories in the Bible would you say that he called them to the path of safety and security we're called to walk in faith. That faith would be our eyes. Um, you have to leave room for what Samaritan's Purse calls God room. That's room for God to act in a situation that seems bleak. Room for God to act in a way that only He can. God room requires faith, church. God wants it to be where only He receives the glory. I mean, think about when God shows up in the Bible. It's it's not when Israel has it together and they can figure it out on their own. It's when the armies are mounting against them. He shows up. And he wins the victory in the way that only he receives the glory. And I can't even think of a way that God shows up the same way twice. But God shows up when the people of faith have faith that God will move. God shows up to Peter when he's in chains in prison. Uh, James, the, the apostle, had just been beheaded. And, and 
the, the, church was, the church was worried about Peter being in prison and they prayed and it's not like those people could, could take the prison by force, could they? It's a small number of people. God shows up, sends an angel, goes and unlocks his chains and walks them all the way out to where they're at. That's God room, room where only God can, can act. Think about our salvation even. Our, our situation was bleak. We were hopeless. Then God became a man and dwelt among us. And God died the death that we could not die so that we would have a salvation that we could not earn. And look, we can't even, we can't even follow God. Let's, once we enter into that relation, we can't even follow God. So he sends us the Holy Spirit to come live within us and to enable us to walk in his ways. The world's definition of realism takes out the God room. A biblical realism sees an all-powerful, all-loving God who deeply cares and loves for his people and is willing and ready to provide for their needs but God is the sort that likes to be asked. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the, to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if the son asks him for bread you will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, you will give him a serpent. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Or maybe you want it said a little more plainly like James does in, in James 4 too. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. My family's been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a series of books. And the first one is um, called the, the Magician's Nephew. And you meet Aslan the Lion the first time. And in the, in the book, he creates this world um, by speaking. So he's, he's this Christ figure. And there's a, a little boy and a little girl who wind up in his world. And their name is Diggory and Polly. And Aslan sends them on a mission. And so they're, they're on this mission with their horse. And this is the conversation between Polly and Diggory and their horse. It's a world where horses can talk. It's fine. So Diggory says, well, I don't think someone might have, you would have thought someone would have arranged about our meals. So it was late in the day and he was hungry. And the horse said, I'm, I'm sure Aslan would have if, if you would have asked him. Wouldn't he have known without being asked, said Polly? I love what the horse says. He says, I have no doubt he would, but I have a sort of idea that he likes to be asked. I don't know why you're in your situation. I don't know how you got there. I, I don't know if God will change it for you. But what I do know is God is the sort that likes to be asked. I do know that God is jealous. And you looking for safety and security and provision and what the world has to offer, that's idolatry. 
You just don't have a little trinket that, that you're praying to. And when you do that, when you're looking horizontally, when you're looking on this earth for what can only be given vertically from above, it's idolatry. It's nothing less. Looking for security outside of God's sovereignty shows the state. It showed the state. It's showing the state of Naomi's spiritual being, right? And it also shows the, the state of our spiritual beings. I know in my life I can relate. When I'm going through something, I, I fixate on the situation and it becomes this loop in my mind. And I start telling myself how unfair it is and, and how it's not my fault and, or whatever it is. Just that loop, that internal lawyer just keeps going over and over and over. And so then I just, I, 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 with a flurry of action, I try to generate something better. And every time I've done this, no matter what the situation is, when I trust in what, what my hands can accomplish, I end up in a worse place than where I started. I don't know if you can relate to that. And then I become bitter, just as Naomi says here that she's bitter. Bitterness drives us to fixate on a situation and blinds us to God's sovereignty and God's comfort. After making this pious-sounding blessing, Naomi makes an accusation against God in verse 13. She blames God for making her life bitter. Did God move her to the land of blessing, from the land of blessing? No, he, he set he heaven and earth on a trajectory that her family lineage would go to Judah and Israel. It was her and her husband, Elimelech. They looked at the situation around them, and they decided to go to Moab. Nowhere does she accept fault. Nowhere do you see her repenting of sin. All you see her doing is accusing God of being unfair with her. If you are in this place where you are accusing God of injustice, I want you to beware. You need to understand that all you deserve is God's wrath. And every moment that you are not experiencing the full weight of his wrath bearing down on you is God's grace and mercy being poured out. Even if the situation's hard, even if you're hurt, even if you're suffering, that is still God's grace. You don't want what you deserve from God. The, this bitter complaint it sounds like she's got a firm faith, but when we dig into it, we see that her faith is fragile at best. If you're preaching this message to yourself of God being unfair to you, I just want you to know you, you don't want fair. The only one who's ever received unfair was the innocent one, Jesus Christ. Jesus had not sinned, and Jesus was punished for our sin. It's unfair that he was beaten, mocked, and cursed. It's unfair that he was put in a tomb. And it's unfair that we get to live in his accomplishments. It's not fair, that's grace. Grace is, is getting something we don't deserve. I don't deserve the love of God. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to, to reign with God forever in eternity. It's unfair 
and I would rather God's unfairness. Your situation is not unfair or unjust, though it might be uncomfortable and painful. And let's look at the next scene. We finally see, finally see Ruth speak. We'll look very quickly. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So still she's pushing her towards these other gods. Orpah, she goes home brokenhearted, but Ruth clings. She clings to her. Orpah falls for the argument for realism and goes back to her gods. And Orpah probably lived a very comfortable life. But if Orpah continued down this path and she, she went back to her people and she went back to their gods, while her life may have been very comfortable, we can know that she's separated from God in an eternal hell. It's not push people towards comfort or towards the world's view of realism, but towards faith. And I can't believe that's what Naomi wanted for her. But when you're hurt, you're not thinking clearly, right? Let's, let's be kind to her in that. But believer, I want you to know this. Beware of the weight of your words. They have lasting effects. Finally, Ruth speaks. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I will be buried. May the Lord do to me more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, she was determined to, to go with her. She said, no more. Ruth shows radical self-sacrifice. And we're going to sum a lot of this up. Ruth when she decides not to go back to her people, we see her give a confession for God. We see, I believe this is the moment when she believes and she steps into this, this covenant faithfulness. She commits herself to Yahweh God. She says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She's all in. She's determined to die there. She even goes as far to offer a curse on herself if she doesn't follow through. And this is what walking in faith looks like. Did, did Ruth see that she would be in the lineage of King Jesus? Did Ruth see that she would be in the lineage of King David? Did Ruth see that there would even be bread for her mouth in Israel? She responded in faith, and faith looks like putting that foot down where God's pointing. It doesn't give you the whole map. But because she responded in faith, we will not forget her name. Because she responded in faith, she will always be remembered. And this is, this is what I want to challenge you here with this morning as a believer. It could have been Orpah if it, if it wasn't for obedience. What blessings are you missing out on because you're not willing to take that step of faith and walk in obedience? What blessings have you missed out on in your life? So the call this morning for you is, as we're singing, Brandon and the band are coming up, 
Just ask the Lord, where are you calling me to obedience? And take that step. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Come, come take that step. I'm, I'm going to be right here. I'd love to pray with you. But I want you to be aware of one thing. Many in, 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 in our southern culture, they want to be Christian-ish. The Bible has two categories of people. Believers and unbelievers. There's no category for Christian-ish. It's all in. And if you've never went all in with God, I would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Him. If you will, bow your heads with me.